Good morning. Welcome to Faith Community Bible Church. We're going to get started here this morning. One of the themes that comes out in the story of Joseph is the sovereignty of God, especially in hard circumstances. Sort of in the darkest days and the storms of life that it's good to proclaim, I will not be moved. That song is more aspirational than reality for me. It's like, I'm not going to be moved despite the nastiness that's happening. I am anchored. I am steadfast. My hope is in you. That's the, the song you sing when you feel least like singing it because you're declaring this is true even when it's hard to believe it's true. I wonder if Joseph sang that song in the dungeon. But before I get into the sermon, I want kids, hey, kids, over here. Do you want to come up? I'll tell you a story. Diana, do you want to bring some chairs up for the kids? Maybe just three of them will be okay. I'm going to tell you a story about Joe, the hero. Not Jake the snake, that was his dad. This is Joe the hero. All right, so once upon a time, there was a kid named Joe. And Joe had 10 older brothers who did not like him. That must have been really, really hard for Joe to have 10 older brothers who picked on him. Now, part of the reason was Joe's dad gave Joe fancy clothes. So he didn't work out in the fields with his older brothers. They did all the work. They were, like, taking care of the sheep and mucking out the stalls. And Joe had fancy clothes. He's like, his dad's like, hey, you take care of your little brother, Ben. You just stay close here. Brothers are like, why does he get to stay inside and play with Ben? And we have to go out and work. Oh, he's fancy clothes. He can't work out in the fields with us. Joe was also a little bit of a tattletale. It means when his brothers were doing stuff wrong, he'd go to his dad. Hey, did you see what so-and-so did? He was naughty. He told on his brothers when they were doing naughty things, which it's probably probably okay that we notice when someone's doing something naughty, but then if we become the person who tells on them, they don't like that. And Joe was also a dreamer. You know God can speak to us in dreams? Who has dreams? Raise your hand if you have a dream. Did you have any dreams last night? I did. I dreamt about my dad last night. My dad passed away a year ago. It's interesting. I was dreaming about him last night. And God talks to us sometimes when we're sleeping. I don't know why. Maybe it's because we're not thinking too hard about it. Doesn't always talk. Now, dreams don't always mean something. But Joe had dreams. He had this one dream that he got to be really, really, really famous. And he told his brothers and mom and dad, I had this dream that you guys were like, oh, you are so amazing, Joe. You're so famous. I can't believe how amazing and wonderful you are. He told that to his brothers who did not like him. They're like, 
what are you talking about? Even his dad and mom's like, um, maybe not talk like that to your brothers about us being all goo-goo because you're so famous. He had that dream. He's super, super famous. And he told his brothers and his mom and dad, and they kind of rolled his, their eyes. So his brothers didn't like him. Well, when he was an older kid, 17, a teenager. Do you know any teenagers? Raise your hand if you know a teenager. I know Leo. She's a teenager. Okay, well... Okay, yeah, teenagers come in all shapes and sizes, and Joe was a teenager, and he was at home because he had his fancy clothes, but his brothers had to go take the sheep further and further away to find some place to eat, and his dad's like, you go find your brothers and see how they're doing, and so he went out there with his fancy clothes, found his brothers far away, and they're like, oh, here comes that tattletale dreamer, Joe the Hero. He thinks he's so cool because he has fancy clothes. And he had this dream. He's going to be this great, fancy, famous hero. Well, we'll teach him. And when he came, they tied him up. They wanted to do nasty things to him. And then they saw this group of people that were coming through. Hey, let's make some money off him. Let's sell him. We'll see what comes of him then. He won't be so famous or fancy. Let's take his fancy clothes. They took his fancy clothes, sold him to these people who were coming through. And so they made money off of him. And he got taken far away. He didn't do anything. Really? I mean, maybe, you know, there's that frontal lobe thing. He probably wasn't quite so thoughtful about how to tell people about these. Anyway, he he really, he didn't do anything wrong. He, his dad made him the favorite and gave him fancy clothes and kept him from going out, and his brothers didn't like him. And now he gets sold. And those people sold him in Egypt, which is far from where he was brought up. He had to, it was a bad place to sold people back then, too. And um, selling people anytime is probably a really bad thing. So the, a really rich guy bought him as his houseboy, his servant. So I want you to work in my house and take care of all my stuff. Joe was actually really good. He must have had to learn their language. And anything he did got really, really good results. Uh, Joe, I want you to take care of all the food and the cooking and stuff like that. And he hires a really great chef. And he, he manages to get really good prices and get the really best foods. Like, whoa, you did a really great job there. How about you take care of the gardener? He hires a gardener and... Everything he did as a servant, as a houseboy, turns out amazing because God was with him. And God was helping him make good choices and do good things. And the stuff that he did turned out really, really amazing. Well, the rich guy's wife gets Joe in trouble. He didn't do anything wrong. She just got him in trouble. She got him thrown in jail. 
He didn't do anything wrong. She just accused him of doing something wrong, and he didn't. And they put him in jail. So now he's, you know, here he was, fancy clothes Joe, and daddy's favorite, and now he got sold by his brothers, and then he got put in this house as a slave, and now he's in jail. Really bad jail. It was a king's jail, so there were other king's people there. He met these guys. They were friends of the king. One guy tasted the wine and stuff of the king, and one guy uh, was baker for the king. And these guys had dreams. Remember, Joseph is a dreamer. He's also a dream reader. If you have a dream that means something, he can listen to God, and God will tell him, here's what that person's dream meant. These two guys had dreams. These king's friends that were in jail, too. They were, I don't know why they were in jail. Like, you know, they didn't please the king, and he's like, oh, I'm going to send you guys to jail. So the cupbearer, the guy who tested the drink, and the baker, they were in jail. They had these dreams, and they were really in, interested in these dreams. Joseph says, I can tell you what they mean. He tells them exactly what they mean, and these dreams are saying what's going to happen. It turns out exactly. And the guy who is the chief cupbearer for the king, the guy who drinks the king's wine to test see if there's poison or whatever, he gets taken back into the palace. And Joe's like, hey, I'm, I am not here because I've done anything wrong. Like, I was a good kid. I, my frontal lobe wasn't developed, so I didn't probably say the right things with my brothers. But really, I didn't do anything wrong. Here I am in a dungeon. When you go to the king, just tell him, hey, there's this guy in there. He shouldn't be in there. Help me get out. The guy's like, I will. I will help you get out of here, Joe. Thank you for interpreting my dream. The guy forgets all about Joe. He's two more years in that jail. Everybody's forgotten him. He's away from his family. One day, the king has a dream. And what do you think? The guy who Joe told his dream about, it's like, oh, I, the king's really disturbed. Hey, who's going to tell me about this dream? I know a guy. I know a guy. Oh, yeah, he's in jail. It's like, well, bring him over here. Joe had been in jail so long. He's really old now. He's 30. And so they, his, he's dirty, and his beard is like, like Ross's over there. It's just huge. So they shave him and clean him up. And old 30-year-old Joe goes to the king and tells him what his dream means. Exactly. He's like, I, there's something about this kid. He thinks he's a kid, but he's really old. You know, the king is really old, but Joe is 30. He's like, you've just told me what's going to happen here. I need someone who's going to be in charge because what's about to happen is nasty. There's going to be a famine, but there's going to be good times where there's going to be lots and lots of food, but then there's going to be a bad time where there's hardly any food. Who can help us? You can. I can tell. I can smell it on you. You're smart. And you, what, this guy, the rich guy is telling me, oh, yeah, actually, everything he did turned to gold. All right, I'm going to put you in charge. So little Joe, who was, you know, treated so badly, 
ended up being like the king's second in command. Like the chief minister or the prime minister, Joe became the prime minister. There's a king, there's a prime minister, Joe was the prime minister. All right, here's what I'm thinking about this story. Lots of bad stuff happened to Joe that he didn't deserve. But Joe stayed true to God. When things that are happening to you that are really, really awful, it's easy to feel like God doesn't care about me anymore because he's let these things happen. That's not true. Joe made it through really awful times and didn't forget God and kept cool even when bad things were happening to him. And then God made Joe's dreams come true even when it didn't seem like it. And God speaks to you and says, this is what I have planned for you. And it, and you're in a dungeon for years. And it's like, this is never going to happen. Don't think about that. Yes. Joe stayed true to God, even in hard times. And Joe, even when it didn't look like anything was happening, God was working. That's what I want you to remember. That's the story of Joe. It's in the Bible. You can read it. And there's probably a storybook with Joe's story and maybe even a cartoon about it. Go watch it sometime. All right, that's it. You're welcome. So we're... At the end of a survey of the book of Genesis, we've we've swept through it and, you know, chapter 37 through 50, like how do you, is there a verse I can hang this on? No. So, but this ark, there is a, um, there's a, there's a way in which when you read a giant portion, you get a different story than if you dissect the smaller parts. Both approaches are great at encountering God through Scripture. We've done more the survey part. But there's a curiosity here that I didn't see before doing this series and taking more sweeping look. There's something about the birth order business in the entire book that is curious. So, you know, it starts with Abraham and uh, Ishmael's the firstborn, and yet Isaac. Okay, the second board. So this this uh, primogeniture is the sort of right of the firstborn, or the you know the right of kings, or the uh, succession, uh, royal succession. Like that gets totally turned on its head in this book in ways that you're just left scratching your head. What's this mean? So we got Isaac, the second born, having the authority over Ishmael, the firstborn. Then you've got this whole thing with Jacob and Esau. All right, and mom is pregnant, and there's, uh, you know, Braxton Hicks is happening, and what's going on? And uh, if you don't know what Braxton Hicks is, ask your mother. Um, they're, They're two nations. So, God, what's going on? It's because there are two nations in there, and they're fighting. And the younger 
one is going to serve the older. These are twins. So there's this prophetic word given. Now, is that like, oh, God wants that, or God's just saying what's going to happen? You know, we're not told like, oh, this is my plan. But Rebecca, the mom, tries to make that happen in unfortunate ways that, that mess with things. So you get the Jacob and Esau story. And then Judah, one of the sons of Jacob, gets his daughter-in-law pregnant. That's a whole story. You know, we'll, we'll skip that one. That's you know, As you're getting into the story of Joseph, there's this little parenthesis. Oh, by the way, Joseph's brother Judah gets his daughter-in-law pregnant. And she has t- twins. That thing about, you know, skipping a generation. To, you know, the twins are the grandkids of a twin. So, you know, so daughter-in-law gets pregnant with twins. And uh, as she's giving birth, one of the twins' arms comes out and the midwife ties a ribbon on it and then pulls it back and those of you who've had children are like, please just stop, no, don't. And and the younger one comes out. So this the firstborn, by his fist or whatever, um, comes out second, and the the secondborn comes out first. So you've, what's going on here, God? What is there something like? Am I just kind of noticing these things and they don't mean anything? But then you get. Uh, Chronicles says that that uh, Reuben, the firstborn of the twelve, forfeits his birthright because he defiles his father's marriage bed, and it goes to Joseph. Okay, and then at the at the end of Genesis, you've got Joseph with two kids, and Dad Isaac, who does the blessing switches the older younger with their blessing these multiple encounters with you know i appreciate um you know royal succession or whatever it makes it, it makes life easy you know none of this election business you just know who's going to be coming up next it's like god does not allow these human constructs to interfere with what god wants to do and I don't know what it says. I just noticed because we're doing this survey. What's with all these sort of second born or in Joseph's case, you know, 11th born taking the place of the firstborn? I don't know. What do you think it says? Talk amongst yourselves. No, not really. I'll have you do that later. I'm just wondering, you know, For most cultures, for most of human history, the the right of succession has been an important thing. God does not seem to care about how we apportion firstborn, secondborn, and rights of heirs. That just in Genesis stands out to me when I survey it. I also see God's heart for the nations. Like, our God is a global God in the sense that, okay, that's 
kind of in the creation story, I want you to cover the earth. And I've made you to be an image bearer in order to bring flourishing to every place. So go everywhere and subdue those things that are out of alignment and govern those things that I've made. And then we've got the failure of humans and uh, this terrible flood that's like, let's just start again. Because this desire, this passion to be in and through my people doing good, I see just evil happening. Then you've got the Tower of Babel, like, oh, they're concentrating. Like, I really, really want the entire cosmos and the planet to be uh, benefiting from my image in you. And I've got to spread you out. Finally, we get Abraham and God's promise. Okay, what if I make myself especially present in one family and you all become the keys to everybody flourishing? Whether they know me or love me or not, I want to put my blessing in a particular group that will learn my ways, teach others my ways, and be really, really good for the planet and for everybody and then we see Joseph saving the ancient Near East from a terrible, terrible famine. Saving Egyptians, you know, the, the bad guys later on in the story from starvation. I see God's heart for the nations as I look at Genesis. Um, so I want to look at, I, I can't cover chapters 37 through 50. Um, I'm not going to read that passage for us. But let me pick some things out of Joseph's life that, um, that stood out to me as I'm asking God, what do you have for us as a, as a body in this? And at 17... As I mentioned to the kids, we've got some frontal lobe issues because Joseph is probably in a very undiscerning way. God's giving Joseph these pictures that are important and real, and Joseph doesn't know quite how to manage them. I love how God gives amazing gifts to undiscerning people who are still figuring, God knows we're on a journey. Because God's giving you a gift, a vision, a dream, does not mean that you have the maturity necessarily right now to manage it. There's a way in which you are invited to hold those things and ask good questions. As I pray for people or get words for people, I often just share them. I'm not sure that's always wise. It may be that God gives you something to hold, not necessarily to share, and God may not give you the interpretation. How do we handle with discernment and care an important dream, a word, a vision? Those are things that are worth asking. I'm learning from Joseph that it can be done poorly. And that some of it depends on our own maturity. 
And then there are these circumstances beyond Joseph's control. Joseph is, in many ways, um, at the mercy of other things happening to him. There's a vulnerability to Joseph as second youngest. He's rejected by his brothers. Joseph did not choose into that. Maybe he wasn't super wise in all the ways that he dealt with his older brothers, but that was not his fault to be persecuted. And by people who know better. It's one thing to, you know, receive rejection or abuse uh, with people who have wildly different values. It really hurts to be hurt by God's people who, who know better. A bumper sticker, Lord, save me from your people. Um, it's really hard. Joseph's dad, mom, brothers, we also know he had at least one sister, Dinah, but they treat him poorly. He's at the mercy of other people's power over him. Then they physically abuse him, tie him up, sell him into slavery. Joseph is in a power differential with uh, Potiphar's wife, who exercises her power over him in unfortunate ways, ends up getting him in prison. Even if it is a king's prison, I mean, this is the ancient Near East, it's a dungeon. It's probably a really awful place. Even though he's doing good things and everything he does ends up going well. And yet each time things get worse and worse, despite Joseph doing the right thing, saying the right thing, and it gets worse and worse for Joseph. It's outside of Joseph's control, and yet there's something about God being in control. We'll, we'll do, deal with that later. Sort of God's sovereignty. What is going on in that way? I think the question I have, this, this curiosity in this first part of Joseph's life that I want to um, ask you to discuss is Joseph finally gets freed from slavery. Why do you think Joseph doesn't either return or visit his family or invite his family to come? Joseph has been freed from years of slavery. He's 30 now. He was taken when he was 17. He was abducted. He now has power. Now, maybe it was hard for him to get it. Maybe there were still some restrictions, but still, we know he could have had his family come, brought them to him, been reunited in some way. He doesn't. Why? What are you thinking? What have you been talking about? Raise your hand or stand up and, and Jethro will bring you the mic. Why is Joseph not immediately reunited with his family? Well, I, I was saying at my table that I think that the mature, grown-up, 30-plus Joseph was a very different person than the young, naive Joseph who tattled on his brothers. Um, I think he 
recognize that he was in a dialogue with the creator and he waited for the creator good timing to connect his family with him okay good it wasn't it wasn't time i'm also thinking of him as someone who was observant maybe even calculating in both situations he gained the extreme approval of the authority figure in his youth his father in his later life um potiphar and the second life it brought him comfort and authority in the earlier life it brought him condemnation and slavery so we we did ask why would he go back um what would make you want to go back especially if father had died and older brother was now in charge yeah which could easily have happened because he wouldn't know right great Okay, one more, Lori. I think it's a combination of what I shared with them and um, that maybe he was still upset with them and he really didn't want to go back to them. Um, and you know, that kind of shows when he shows up and he tricks them, um, you know, and he doesn't just say, hello, I'm so glad to see you. Um, and then the other thing is he might have remembered his, I'm sure he remembered his dream about how he was supposed to be a person of power and they're going to all be bowing down to him. So he was he was near the power and seemed like the easiest way to the top is my, my thought. You know, when uh, Joseph has his firstborn Manasseh, uh, he names him that, uh, scriptures say, because it, it means God has made me forget all my trouble and my father's household. I think it's something like what Laurie shared. There's still there's still a, a wound there. Maybe it's not ready to be healed, but I wonder if there's some resentment that he's still holding or maybe some fear that, okay, now Reuben's in charge. Dad's probably dead by now, and who knows how it's going to go for me. Although Reuben was kind of the good guy in the, hey, it was while Reuben was away that the others come up with this plan. Um. And Joseph comes into power. We see he's quite shrewd. So he's he's very thoughtful and careful about these seven years of plenty and almost hoardish about it, like super careful about how this gets distributed. He marries uh, an Egyptian priest's daughter. That's interesting. I suppose that, you know, Choices are limited in terms of good Jewish women to marry. But uh, these two tribes that come out of Joseph, you know, these two sons are half Egyptian. We see, you know, Ephraim and Manasseh being half Egyptian. And mom is, I don't know, maybe a priestess or, you know, comes out of a Egyptian religious cult. Likely some of those teachings happened in the household or I don't know how Joseph managed to keep you know Hanukkah which obviously didn't exist but like keep (laughs) when you're the only one how do you make that happen you know and you're married to a woman very invested in the system and I just I have to believe it, it was very difficult I think God had grace likely God had grace and 
possibly Joseph has other things going on as he's maybe even adopting. We, we learn later about this divination cup that he's got. Like, what is that? I think, you know, Joseph is the sole Hebrew or... There are other Hebrews. We learn anti-Semitism comes early. Like Egyptians and Hebrews. This is just the early centuries of the Hebrew people. They know them. Oh, they're sheep people. And uh, we don't even eat with them. We see anti-Semitism in Egypt. How Joseph as prime minister, as a Hebrew prime minister, manages in an anti-Semitic culture... Like all of these things were not given much commentary or editorial about how this all works out. But we see Joseph perhaps unwisely when they, uh, in the, in the first couple years, the famine's so bad, you know, they give all their money, then they sell all that they, their land and their animals. Finally, Joseph um, suggests that we enslave the nation. The few people who have uh, power enslave the masses who have nothing. Does Joseph kind of accidentally set up uh, the exodus, you know, this, this mass slavery of Hebrew people in his management uh, during this crisis. And then we see the famine bringing the brothers there. And I wonder about these, like, my brothers! That's not Joseph's reaction. He's like, where's Benny? I'm, is Joseph being cruel or is Joseph testing his siblings? We're not told all right, you guys are obviously spies. They're like, what the? It's probably because, you know, they're talking amongst themselves in Hebrew. They don't know this prime minister understands him. Probably because of what we did to Joseph, that this nasty stuff, you know. No, uh, you guys are spies. You've come to check out the property. You say you've got a little brother. I don't believe it. You want to prove you're not spies? I'm going to keep one of you here as prisoner. The rest of you go back and bring the little brother so I know you're not spies. That feels a little cruel to me. <laughs> What's going on there? And if if we had time, I'd have you discuss is Joseph testing, trying to bring something out of his brothers? Is God it, speaking to Joseph? This is what I want you to do. Because what I'm trying to do is to bring a form of repentance and I I'm, I'm want to show my sovereignty and the way we're going to do this is you're going to treat them as spies and send them back to bring Benjamin. How much is Joseph's choice in this? How much is Joseph being led by God in this? And so... Um, They go back, and their dad's like, what, Simeon's gone now too? All right, somehow he knows something's up. 
Joseph has been deprived of me. I wonder if he's looking at the boys. It was when he was under your care that he died. And now Simeon, now you want this treasure of mine, whom I like more than the rest of you, to go? And you want me to lose Ben, too? That will bring my gray hair down to the grave. No, I'm not going to send Ben. So they eat through what they had brought back and begin starving again. They're like, hey, we could have been there and back twice. All he does wants to do is see Ben to prove that we're not lying. Can you just send Ben with us? And finally, uh, Jacob just breaks down like, okay, this is like the end of our people if we don't do something like this. So they send Ben back and the heat cranks up even more. All right, bring them to my home. And they're all thinking, okay, he wants to enslave all of us. He has no intention of making good on this promise. Then some hints come like, okay, interesting. He seated us in birth order. How in the world would he know? Because, you know, You know, Nathaniel's taller than Reuben, and how does he know that he's really this far? And the little guy gets the, the, you know, the blood brother of both mother and father, the only one that they share the same mom. He gets, you know, a bigger portion, like he knows something. That all goes well. He sends them off, hope. Phew, we got through that. And yet his divination cup, whatever that is, he even says, didn't you know with, I can I can uh, predict things through divination? He uses that word, at least in Hebrew, it's translated divination. So they all come back. Okay, is he, and it's in Ben's bag. Like, okay, just bring back the one that's got this. It feels a lot like a scheme, just like I just want me and Ben to be here in Egypt and poop on the rest of them. And yet um, they all come back. Oh, maybe that was Joseph that I want to see. Do they like, is it all for one, one for all? Are they going to abandon Ben like they abandoned me? Maybe. We're not told. So they all come back, and uh, it's just too much then for Joseph. He kind of breaks the silence. Now he's really old, by the way. He's 39. Because <laughs> there's been seven years, like he was 30. There's been uh, seven years of, you know, plenty, and at least two years of famine and um, there's this hinge statement I know what you did was wrong but what you mean to do nasty wrong things God means to make for good things I wonder, and there's this confessional bit of the brothers. So we learn stuff from the brothers. Okay, like when you do something wrong, 
and try to cover it over, it generally doesn't stay covered over. And you know, in my youth, I did dumb things. And years later, felt like I need to reckon. Because it wouldn't leave my conscience. The brothers' consciences are troubled. If your conscience is troubled, probably there's another step you need to take. James says, confess your sins to one another so that you can be healed. There's a way in which healing is disrupted when you hold on to and keep something you're, tr- you're, you're troubled about to yourself. It's helpful to hear it out loud. I know, you know, confess to God, but the 12 steps is like, uh, for Alcoholics Anonymous, like, no, you need to s- write it down or say it out loud to the people that you were hurting. There's something about confession to one another, as James says. Confess your, there's something about hearing my mouth say, I did this wrong thing. I'm really sorry. Even if I've said I'm sorry to God, to say it out loud, like confess your sins. The the brothers are talking about what we did to Joseph was wrong. And, And there's something about this whole journey that brings that out. And maybe they haven't talked about it in all these years. And they finally start confessing it. So there's part of this story that feels like the brothers' journey something we're watching, their development, their maturity in owning and confessing their sins. And then we're seeing God work in the midst of bad circumstances. How does that happen? Again, I would have you talk at your tables, but this has been a question for millennia. What part is God playing here? Is God instigating in some ways this you know, hatred of the brothers in order to put Joseph into this caravan that, you know, and even in Potiphar's house, no, he's got to go to the, you know, does God put Joseph in slavery and then in jail in order to accomplish God's purposes? What part is God playing in that? What choices do others have? Oh, those are the questions theologians have wrestled with. You're not going to likely solve it at your table, but you probably have an opinion that would be great to share and hear. Maybe at lunch you can talk with someone about what God, what part God plays in accomplishing God's purposes through nasty, terrible, wicked, awful, evil things. So... How does that work? Just to, to end with my own story that's not nothing, anything like Joseph's, and I think I've mentioned before, I was really picked on in junior high. I was that kid. You know, I remember walking down the hallway and getting kicked so hard that I flew forward, all my books spilled, only to find this, I know, this sounds like a trope. I had a, piece of paper on my back that said, kick me. 
typed or you know taped to my back. It's like, oh, that's just the stereotypical sort of uh, trope of like, oh, kick me and someone kicks me. Um, in junior high, also, my one friend convinced me to join a bowling league. This is Iowa. I don't know. Milwaukee's a bowling. You know, Laverne and Shirley. Never mind. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know. Eighth grade. What is that? 12 or 13 or something like that. Joined the bowling league. And, you know, I was always that awkward kid in gym class, whatever. Super, super self-conscious, low self-esteem. And when you're in a crowd of kids your age and someone says... All right, everybody form teams. That is just the worst set of words that a low self-esteem kid can hear. Everyone rushes to their buddies. Even my buddy rushed to his other buddies. Like, And after a few minutes, it's just the awkward kids looking at one another. So all of the rejects form their own team. Okay, form your team's name. I don't remember what we named ourselves. I remember what we were called. The retards was the name of our team by everyone else. Like that was my formative self space. (laughs) Doug has allowed me to come onto his team. What I find in that period of my life, whether God Um, instigated or initiated all these forms of rejection. My parents had also divorced during that period, so it's just this very tender place. I see and point back to that period as a time where a real strength in empathy was developed in me. There was something beautiful about God's formation of my character in a very tender time where it was awful, awful to live through and and created deep wounds and insecurity that still have their tentacles today. And yet that was used by God, allowed by God, however you put it. I see good. What are those places in life today where you need to say, I will not be moved I am anchored, never shaken. My hope is in you, even when it doesn't look like you're doing anything. You're alive. You are moving. That conviction of faith that I think Joseph must have had, honestly, as much as I see things that question his uh, character, I think Joseph had that. And God's purposes and ability to use the storms of life and hardship and wicked things done by others, even people who know better, even fellow brothers and sisters, literally in Joseph's case, um, God can use those things when you're super disappointed with people who ought to know better doing nasty things to you. God is in control. God can use those things. God's purposes will not be thwarted by the wickedness or insensitivity of others. 
even though there may be wounds that you have to deal with or reckon with. God's purposes will be accomplished. Lord, we hand to you those things that confuse us and that feel like they were really, really hurtful. And we even see ways that we're limping emotionally because of it. And yet we hold on to something of a conviction that you see and that you can use even nasty things for good. We hold out to you right now the nasty things that seem to be weighing on us. And we offer them to you. Would you take these things and do something beautiful with them as we wait in hope? In Jesus' name, amen.